Listener supported. WNYC Studios. In 2013, 30-year-old composer Caroline Shaw decided to submit this piece, Partita for Eight Voices, for consideration for the Pulitzer Prize, with the rationale that, A, the $50 application fee was affordable, in her words, half the price of applying to grad school, and B, maybe her group, Roomful of Teeth, would have an easier time booking gigs if they had a little brand recognition by the types of new music movers and shakers likely to be on the Pulitzer Prize committee. Then something incredible happened. This is where I was. It was 3-something, probably 3.03 p.m. on a Monday. And I had been... I'd actually just gone to Brooklyn because I thought I had an Acme rehearsal and... I didn't because I got it wrong. <laughs> I was like, I'll just come back from Williamsburg. And I had some time extra, the rehearsals that night. And so I walked down here because it was April and it was getting really beautiful. And then um, I got a call from a friend. And as he was talking to me and telling me, I got a couple of other texts and calls. You know, when your phone just kind of keeps doing the thing in your ear. Um, and that was when uh, I got the call about the Pulitzer. I don't like to talk about it. (laughs) But that happened right here, yeah. In case you didn't catch that, Caroline became the youngest ever winner of the Pulitzer Prize for music. So we are on, I think it is Pier 64. Is that true? Pier 64. Um, West side of Manhattan. Right now I'm looking at the Hudson River. It is so beautiful. This is one of my favorite places in the city um, for a variety of reasons but I love the water I grew up looking at the Albemarle Sound in North Carolina and so something about looking at the Hudson River it's just you know water is the same everywhere so whenever you feel you know what's going on (laughs) where am I that's a very um, grounding thing for me and I love this pier because it's grass all the way down. It's just like probably trash built up on top of pilings. Like, I'm sure, I know it's trash. I know I'm sitting on trash. But that's also kind of this really interesting poetic metaphor. Like, then it becomes this piece of grass that's jutting out of this crazy city. And then last summer, um, it was just such an insane time. And I needed to figure out a way to deal with it by myself. So I started kayaking. And that's like the best way to see the city is actually from a little boat by yourself <laughs> and so we would kayak back and forth and I never told anyone like what I did or why this place was important to me but we would kayak right by this pier and I would just kind of remember that spot so this is where I was
better or worse, the Pulitzer Prize has always had a kind of reputation as a lifetime achievement award, especially for music. Something awarded to people like Charles Ives and Steve Reich closer to the ends of their careers than the beginnings. When I saw Caroline's name among the winners, my first thought was, this must be a different Caroline Shaw. Caroline's winning the prize was exhilarating. It was a left turn for the Pulitzer. And today we'll explore what exactly makes her partita so wonderful and how Caroline uses her resources as a performer and a collaborator to create joyful, stunning work. Stay tuned. The composer. I'm Nadia Sirota. Today on Meet the Composer, we mine the brain of Caroline Shaw. Until a few years ago, Caroline hadn't ever had a formal composition lesson. She had a couple of performance degrees and a pretty impressive bio as a performer with a thriving career as a new music violinist in groups like the American Contemporary Music Ensemble and as a vocalist as well in groups like Roomful of Teeth. Caroline had always been composing, though. Composition to her was a natural extension of her musicianship, totally married to her performance life. On a bit of a whim, she decided to apply for Princeton's PhD program in composition. Never having had a composition lesson in her life, Caroline was accepted. And a couple years later, she won the Pulitzer Prize in music. Caroline's story is fascinating because she composes seemingly without ego. Her musical output is such a natural extension of her personality, and perhaps it's rare we see people rewarded for living their lives beautifully. I started playing violin when I was two. I don't remember that at all. It was through the Suzuki method, so it's the idea that you start studying music when you are learning to speak. So language and music is really connected. Can you sing O Kamel Children? My first violin teacher was my mom, actually, so I remember her singing a lot when we were working together. I had two older brothers who play violin, also, and I would go to their lessons at this other teacher's house, Joanne Bath, and it was always Wednesday afternoons. When I was about five or six, I started taking lessons with her more. From six to 18, I had violin lessons on Wednesday afternoons. Never changed. Do you remember at all, like, the first moment you, you connected music to your voice? I became really obsessed with opera. I was listening to La Traviata every night when I was 10. And I remember trying to play, wanting to make vibrato um, with the violin in the way that this particular singer sang, who sings actually a lot like my mom. So she starts with kind of a straight tone in her voice and then adds vibrato later on. And I started to try and play the violin like, like a singer. Did you 
sing in choirs at all when you were younger? I sang in my local church choir, so an Episcopal church, so we did a lot of hymns and um, sort of traditional choral music. And there was a youth, youth choir in town that I would sing with sometimes. I remember my first uh, string quartet experience. I think I was maybe nine, and that's when I really fell in love with music. Caroline loved playing in string quartets, and to her, it just seemed natural to try to create her own. I wanted to write a string quartet just like Mozart. <laughs> so uh, I didn't really know much about it, but I knew what, you know, how notes worked. And um, it was definitely in G major, and I didn't put any sharps in the key signature because I didn't know what that was. So, yeah, it sounded a lot like a slow movement of a Mozart quartet, but everything was a little bit off. <laughs> this template of, I love this thing, let's see if I can make one myself, comes naturally to Caroline. While many performers are petrified of writing notes for themselves to play, Caroline is not. And then uh, I started playing a Brahms violin sonata when I was maybe 14 or so and wrote a piece for uh, viola and piano. I don't know why I chose viola. I think it was just more Brahmsian. Uh, I wrote that at, actually at music camp at Kinhaven one summer when I was there. And they said, oh, anyone who we had this composer concert, if you have a piece that you've written or you want to write something, we'll do it. And so I went to this art shack at the corner of the, the Music Camp campus every day and like went up to this loft and would just start writing this piece. That was the first piece I ever completed and played myself. As you were going into high school, was your thought like, I'm definitely a musician, I'm going to be like a performer when I grow up, or did you have any kind of concept of what you wanted to do with all of that stuff? Um, well, I do remember one particular thing. It was during that summer at Kinhaven, and I played um, a Clara Schumann trio, piano trio. And um, I remember it was with uh, Tasha Keith on piano and Kevin McFarland on cello, who's actually in the Jack Quartet. Hi, I'm Kevin McFarland, and I'm cellist with the Jack Quartet. And we played this Clara Schumann trio, and I don't know if they enjoyed it as much as I did, but I remember finishing the performance and then listening to that recording and coming home after that summer and saying, this is what I'm going to do. This is, that is absolutely it. And it was all over. <laughs> yeah. Deciding to focus her college education on music performance, Caroline went to the Shepherd School of Music at Rice University to study with acclaimed violin teacher Kathleen Winkler. Who's a really excellent violin teacher. I went, I went there because of sort of the nature of the school, a mixture of different kinds of education, and also um, for her particular teaching. Was the sort of composing part of what you did and the singing part of what you did as important to you in your undergrad as it had been as a kid? As a kid. No, it definitely became very violin-centric for, for a long time. Actually, probably from around age... 15 onward, it was... 15 until when? Until um, now, I guess. <laughs> 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 um, no, I, I sang... A, actually, okay, full disclosure. I did sing in an acapella group 
in college for two years. What kind of stuff did you guys sing? Oh, it was really good. Um, we sang a cover of Ben Folds 5. She's a brick and I'm drowning slowly. A lot of stuff that I didn't know. We actually sang this song um, called Like a Prayer. I don't know if you know that one. I totally didn't. <laughs> we were like, oh, that Like a Prayer song, okay. I sang like the lower alto part. That was my part. Nice. Later found out that that's a Madonna song. <laughs> Yeah, so saying, um, and I did actually a little Gilbert and Sullivan, but mostly I had to keep it kind of hidden from my teacher because, um, you know, I should have been practicing more. Like I didn't tell her I was in this Gilbert and Sullivan production because I knew she would, I thought she would be afraid, but actually she's a lovely, nice person. She probably would have thought that was fine. The thing is, I feel like there's a lot of <laughs> things that people do in their undergrad that are a lot worse than like being in a Gilbert and Sullivan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, cool. So Kathy Winkler, Rice. Yeah. Um, and were you like, okay, this is it. Like, I've, I've been studying violin. I'm going to go win an orchestra job or something. Like, what was your sort of post-collegiate mental state? Ah, uh, crazy chaos. Um, it was, I knew I wouldn't do orchestra. I, as much as I loved it, I wasn't sure I was the kind of person who would win an orchestra job. I'd done one orchestra audition. After college, I lived in Europe for a year. I lived in Paris for about three months. I just saw online there was an orchestra audition for the Paris Opera. And I was like, wow, I haven't practiced in a while. This would be a good thing for me to do. So I went, and it was 350 people. And um, How many openings did they have? I think it was one. <laughs> um, 350 people waiting, you know, waiting in line. You get a number and for one spot. And uh, there were three rounds. I only played the first round, but it's kind of intense. Everyone is practicing in front of each other, you know, focusing very hard. Very tense situation. I knew that that probably wasn't going to be the route that I would go, but I really wanted to play in a in a string quartet. So I was a you know senior in, in college, and I I did actually all my grad school auditions. I needed to go get a master's, but I also applied for this fellowship called the Thomas J. Watson Fellowship. It's not a music thing in particular. It's where you design sort of what you want to study for a year outside the country. Maybe a project that you've always dreamed of, that you've never been able to do, that maybe is a little bit outside the box. And you don't, you know, have an internship and you don't go to school. It's just you're doing this independent project for a year and you can't come back to your home country. So I really wanted to, um, well, I wanted to write music. And I wanted to study landscape architecture and gardens. So I proposed this idea of writing a series of string quartets based on aesthetic principles of historical formal garden design, actually. So I went to all the sort of famous French formal gardens and a lot of English landscape gardens and uh, Italian Renaissance gardens. Did a lot of walking and thinking and then meeting people. What pieces came out of thinking about these gardens or looking at these gardens? Um, actually, they were never finished, but they're, I realize now that what I, a lot of what I do and the way I write music is related to things that I was thinking of then. There's something interesting about English landscape gardens, sort of in the 18th, 19th century. One feature of English landscape gardens are follies. They sort of construct the fragment of a castle that wasn't there before, but it's sort of the idea that, oh, there's a wistful longing for another time. And it's just there in the garden, sort of off in the distance on a hill, this fragment of a castle that is, it's kind of totally bogus, but an interesting idea. 
<laughs> it's like a fake ruin? A fake ruin, yes. That's what it is. So, you know, I, f- I find I do that a little bit with my music, too. You put in, like, a little reference to music of another time. Do you do that a little bit in your in your string quartet that you wrote for the Brentanos, the yeah, entre-act the piece? yeah. That's a piece that is kind of thinking about um, Haydn minuets and trios just in terms of its structure, but also gestures that are very referential to um, earlier music. So I'd just love to talk a little bit more about how solitude may have affected your creative brain. That's just deep. <laughs> um, how has solitude affected my life? I tend not to share anything that I'm working on with anyone. I kind of like to write late at night because it's when no one else is around. It's really quiet. And I can kind of get away from other ideas and people, really. I like to spend a lot of time by myself. I don't know. <laughs> do, you think, do you think composition is, is by necessity sort of a solo activity? Well, making music is so social, and I'm making music with people all the time. I mean, I want people to make music together, but sometimes you have to go back home and be by yourself for a while and create this thing that is um, structured in a particular way that you've decided on. To hear more of this piece, Entract, or any other piece from today's program, go to q2music.org slash meetthecomposer. When we come back, Caroline talks gothic churches, playing for dance class, and musical 180s. Stay tuned. Hi, 
I'm David Lang. I'm a composer here in New York. I'm one of the directors of Bang on a Can, along with Michael Gordon and Julie Wolf. And I love Q2. What's really fantastic about Q2 is that it's the music of our time. It brings in insane people like me to talk about what it is like to do stuff right now. What's the shape of the musical culture right now? How is it changing? And how does listening to it help change it? And that's the kind of station that I want to be around. So I really hope you will join me in supporting Q2 Music and you can donate now at q2music.org. This is Meet the Composer, and I'm Nadia Sirota. Today on Meet the Composer, we mine the brain of Caroline Shaw. Caroline never really set out to be a composer. In fact, her schooling from a very young age was almost completely violin-centric. After college, though, she dropped the script entirely and went to Europe to study landscape architecture for a year, courtesy of the Thomas J. Watson Fellowship. While she was over there in near solitude, Caroline started developing the kernels of ideas that would ultimately sculpt her unique compositional voice. So you, I guess you sort of alit, you came back to Earth or back to the U.S. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I came back and I started a master's degree at Yale in violin. And that was kind of a crazy time because I, well, I just spent a year by myself, basically. And then suddenly was thrust into um, school again and practicing and lessons and that kind of structure, which was... Um, was really nice and exciting and and comfortable I guess after after that year but um I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with violin at that point and don't put this on there I didn't practice at all (laughs) just like stopped I was like I'm not doing that anymore let me just interject here that while Caroline is soft peddling her violinistic prowess she's an incredibly talented player with a deep sense of poetry and a complex nuanced sound This is a recording of her playing Schumann's Violin Sonata, Opus 121. Here's violinist, composer, and frequent Caroline collaborator, Caleb Burhans. The thing that strikes me about Caroline's violin playing is how similar her playing is to her singing. Her playing has a very humble quality about it, and she has a beautiful, dusky, and dark tone. She really doesn't play with a huge bravura that a lot of violin players play with, yet the sound that she creates really draws the listener in. But anyway, Caroline was not really feeling this path the way she used to, and was almost equally fascinated by singing and creating music herself. I got a job singing in a local church choir, Christ Church New Haven, and that, um, it was Every Sunday morning, but then the really beautiful thing was every Sunday night we'd sing Compline at 10 o'clock in a balcony in the church where no one can see you, and the church is just lit by candles. And we'd sing um, Plain Chant and Early Motets by Bird and Talis, Little Josquin. So what does it feel like to sing in a big, gothic-y stone church? What does that space feel like? Um, it's so... It was, it's really resonant, for one thing. Um... And you're just sort of surrounded by this old historical architecture and these certain kinds of um, 
structures and paintings and smells that um, are very different from you know, the outside world, which is, I guess is the, was the idea of the Gothic cathedral. And um, to sing, I mean, to sing a lot of this early music in a space like that, uh, it just, it's kind of transporting. Christchurch was a very tall Gothic building and with very low, low light. So it had this kind of dark, mystical quality to it. And they were really heavy on the incense there. Their tenebrae service is the most beautiful thing in the whole world. It's, uh, I think it was Thursday night, also all darkness. It's like a two-hour compliment, basically, so I love it. The first time, my first year there, um, we got to the tenebrae service. It's, you know, in the middle of Holy Week, so it's just a very intense kind of musical time. Um, and uh, I started weeping when the guys first did their plain chant. And I literally wept for two hours, and like my robe was covered in snot. Don't put this on there. <laughs> but okay, anyway, Tenebrae Service, it's my jam. One piece that came out of this time in Caroline's life is In Manus Tuas, a piece she wrote for her friend, the cellist Hannah Collins. This piece is based on a talis motet of the same name, which translated means into your hands. In this piece, Caroline imagines being way up high in the rafters of a cathedral, hearing snippets of the talus bathed in resonance. Hannah recently visited us at the green space on Varick Street and performed this work live for a studio audience.
Do you consider yourself religious at all? No, but, you know, there's these things in there that are in there. I grew up with a lot of ceremony, uh, a church that had a lot of really beautiful music and very tied to a lot of ceremony. So I love, um, I love that. I don't consider myself religious exactly, but um, there's a certain connection between spirituality and music. While completing her master's, Caroline kept being drawn to musical activities outside of her program. After investing a year in her creative life, returning to the well-worn path of a career violinist felt a little limiting. So when did this whole, you know, compositional bug really start nagging at you? Um, it was there for, I mean, for a while, but I just, I was actually really wary of um, having a composition teacher. I was really avoiding that for a long time. I kind of knew that I wanted to write music for since I was, you know, in high school. But I, I also know that I'm someone who, I get a little literal and I follow directions really well. I like following directions, um, which is why it's, it can be great for learning the violin, but for, I think, learning about writing music, I worried that I would sort of get stuck and it wouldn't be anyone else's fault. It would be my own. So I tried to just um, learn in my own way through a lot of, yeah, playing a lot of new music, um, which I, I just did all the time. I was just paying attention all the time. After finishing at Yale, I lived in New Haven for a year, and that was when, you know, life hit. And he's like, oh, wow, I have to, this is what I'm doing. Uh, okay. <laughs> and um, I lived in a, like, you know, really cheap rent in a warehouse behind the hospital. But um, I started playing for dance classes at uh, this local arts high school and then started playing at Wesleyan, which is 30 minutes north. I would drive to Wesleyan four days a week to play for a beginning modern dance class. And there it was great. I could just, I could play piano, played a lot of violin. I played all kinds of percussion. And sometimes it would need to be in a, in a rhythm or a meter. I would have to give certain tools that they could use. And other times it was free, free contact improv. So you were basically taking like the most interesting composition class where you got a lot of really specific assignments in a row yeah. that you had to complete very quickly. <laughs> very quickly. Yeah, I love the assignments. I love the idea that like I have to do this thing and that's the best possible way to do that. P.S. This is a real cell phone recording of a dance class Caroline played shortly after grad school. It'd be in three or in we're in four with a certain kind of tempo. So meter and tempo were key. I really love ballet classes because it is the most regimented and the most structured and the most rules. So if you're giving, um, let's say, for Petit Allegro, which is usually at the end of the class, and that's after they've done all the warm-ups, but it's for small jumps. So it has to be sprightly and a quicker tempo, very lively and fun, Yes. I love the idea that you're sort of like creating your own little, you know, composition etudes in the context of a dance class. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just made like hours and hours and hours of music. Now, during all this time, remember, Caroline hasn't had a single composition lesson. She was worried she'd follow directions too well or assimilate the voice of her teacher or just become inhibited. 
but she was always writing music. And in 2010, she decided it was time to take this on a bit more seriously. Somehow they let me into Princeton. And um, how did that happen? So you, you were like, <laughs> OK, I've got an undergraduate degree in violin and a master's degree in violin. Uh-huh. And now I'm going to get a, a PhD in composition. Yeah, right. Right on. <laughs> right on. <laughs> yeah. Um, I sort of knew, I thought that I might need to get a doctorate at some point, and I knew that I wasn't practicing enough to do that for violin. And I I wanted to have the chance to write more music and have a few more opportunities. I didn't know what how that worked or if that would be something that would be if getting a degree in composition might be helpful, and at the same time, it would be getting a doctorate. And Princeton, I knew a couple of people who had been there, and um, it's a very open place. So was there any culture shock with all of a sudden, you know, having structured compositional... Lessons at Princeton, you can sort of gravitate to a particular teacher if that's how you work, mm-hmm. and um, sort of work with them on a case-by-case basis. So not, you know, necessarily the kind of lesson every week, which is... My understanding of lessons from uh, violin is a weekly thing with the same person working on um, a particular piece every of Wednesday before. from age six to eighteen. Yeah, every that's what lessons are. <laughs> so I, at Princeton, I've actually had been able to have a lot, a lot of nice conversations with some of the different teachers, Steve Mackey and and Paul Lansky and and Dan Truman. Dan Truman especially because Dan is a violinist and composer and really interested in folk music and sort of breaking down some some barriers between. Those worlds. We're hearing a piece called A Cow Call, Please Oh Please Come Home by Dan Truman. Luckily, studying with him and his colleagues was not what Caroline had imagined, not the stifling, oppressive pedagogy she feared. Here's Dan. So I met Caroline through her application portfolio. It really stood out for being incredibly musical and original and fresh. Her music really feels like it's of the body and of the breath in large part because she's such a committed performer. Uh, And I think when she makes music, it's really about making music with other people. And I think that really is a product of her feeling like a performer first and not even being comfortable initially identifying as a composer. So while Caroline is studying composition for the first time, she's still making her living as a violinist. Uh, I moved to New York and joined um, Red Light New Music, which is a new music group around here and played with them for uh, a couple of years and was doing a lot of Baroque violin. I still I actually went back and commuted to New Haven a couple of days a week while I was living in New York as part of this Yale Baroque Fellowship. So it was kind of a mixture of new music and Baroque freelancing. Yeah, I started subbing with Trinity Wall Street Choir, not as a full member, but just as a sub. And Trinity was kind of the extension of what Christchurch and New Haven had been in terms of the repertoire and the, the kinds of singing and the, the kinds of singers. The singers in Trinity are really amazing. Actually, a lot of them are in Roomful of Teeth with me. So how did you, did you ever have any vocal training or did you just sort of figure it out as you went along? I did take, I took a semester of lessons in college once and that was really, that was really helpful and then when I moved to New York after Yale, I once I started singing with Trinity, I'd taken an audition and they invited me to do their the Bach B minor mass. And then I thought, oh, I need to maybe <clears throat> figure a few things out. So a friend of mine recommended Jackie Horner Kwiatek, a woman who's in Anonymous Four, and I took a few lessons with her. What was it about the Bach B minor mass that 
presented challenges? Um, it's got a lot of sort of tricky, fast passages where you have to sing sixteenth notes like a you know really like an instrumentalist more than sort of traditionally like a singer. Very different from the Bird and Talus, which is long, very long notes and long melodies. The Bach can be, yeah, very fast and very hard. Always, if you want to hear more of anything from today's show, you can go to our website, q2music.org slash meetthecomposer. When we come back, Caroline talks yodeling, Tuvan throat singing, and the shock of success. Stay tuned. Please listen to Q2 Music responsibly. Do not listen for more than 16 hours without a break. Excessive listening may increase the severity of side effects. Side effects from listening to Q2 Music may include excitement, trembling, euphoria, advanced neoconservative postmodernism, elevated pulse, existential joy, hypertrophic danceophilia, and in rare cases, polyrhythmic atonality. If any of these systems persist for more than four hours after you have stopped listening to Q2 Music, consult a musicologist immediately. This is Meet the Composer, and I'm Nadia Serrata. from Caroline Shaw's Partita for Eight Voices. Even at first blush, it doesn't sound like other choral music. It doesn't sound like the talus or Bach Caroline sang in church, or honestly quite like anything I can really think of. It's full of discrete vocal techniques drawn from an extremely Catholic variety of sources, all smashed together in a way that's somehow harmonious, almost obvious even. Caroline has this skill of synthesizing performance practices with poetic musical cells and strong structures to create soul-satisfying work. To that end, this piece, her most well-known, germinated side-by-side with the ensemble that performs it, Roomful of Teeth. So how did Room Full of Teeth get started? I know um, it's an octet, correct? Room Full of Teeth is an octet. Um, eight singers. It was founded by Brad Wells. I'm Brad Wells, the director and founder of Room Full of Teeth. Who has had this wonderful, wonderful dream of exploring the human voice in a way that hasn't really been done before. So our first summer that we were together, it was um, June of 2009, and we got together up at Mass Mocha for three weeks, and this was Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art in North Adams, Massachusetts, and it's so beautiful up there. It's just a massive, massive art museum. Um, really incredible place. 
and some of us knew each other from, you know, Trinity Wall Street or gigs around town, but um, this was the first time we were coming together as Roomful of Teeth, and no one really knew what it was. It was Brad's mastermind project. Did you audition, or did he just pick people? He auditioned. He took a, actually auditioned a ton of people all, all around, sort of gauging whether or not people would be interested in using their voices in a different way, and whether they would be not they would be game for it because it's you know potentially very dangerous. Or that's that was sort of the idea. I know all eight of us were a little, I wouldn't say skeptical, but we were maybe a little scared at the beginning. That's vocalist Cameron Beecham. I live in Austin, Texas, and I sing in Roomful of Teeth. And Caroline Shaw is one of my closest buddies. So even though the eight members of Roomful of Teeth were chosen specifically for their flexibility, even they were freaked out by some of the stuff Brad Wells was asking them to try. We had no idea what it would feel like to sing these techniques, if it would uh, hurt our voices, so we were super careful at the beginning. Brad, of course, was very sensitive to that. And we've done quite a bit of research with some of the techniques. We, We even had a couple of the specialists scoped. What does that mean, scoped? Basically, they squirt a little numbing stuff in the back of your throat, and then they put a little camera down your throat to see your larynx and see what's going on, and they'll have you sing different vowels, different pitches, um, different sounds, just to show if there's any wear and tear on your muscles or if you're sparkly clean. So what, why were you guys scared? What is so different about what you guys do with Roomful of Teeth than, you know, normal singing or, quote, normal singing? The traditional classical training is a technique called bel canto technique. It makes these beautiful, it's actually a way to take advantage of the singer's formant. Bel canto, well, literally means, I think, the beautiful voice or beautiful singing. So it's a sort of opening your throat and letting the vibrato come out, operatic singing. So the very first day we got together, we had two sessions with um, Carrie Christensen, who's a master yodeler, kind of Swiss yodeling style. I'm going to have to do that, right? Yeah, okay. Yara, yara, yara. So breaking your voice from your chest to your head makes this little click in the middle that I totally love. Um, Alanis Morissette, yeah? Yeah, Alanis Morissette. Right. The cram- is it cranberries? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, totally Zombies. cranberries. Yeah. Right. Tons of people do it. Right. Yeah. You know, there's just this idea of using that break in the voice in a colorful, textural way. So that was day one. That was day one. And the other part of day one was Tuvin throat singing. (laughs) 
So we had Ayanul Sam, who is um, this master, amazing throat singer from Tuva, and he was brought in for two weeks to work with us. And the very first day, we were making sounds like, uh, 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 how is this? Is this how it goes? Like, uh. where is Tuva? First of all, Tuva is a. A very small country just north of Mongolia, so eastern, eastern Russia. I like to think of Tuvan throat singing as just creating this very bright sound that has a texture inside of it. I think of music really visually, so I just kind of, it's like this weird color with little bits of something happening in there, and then you can sometimes make overtones that come out of this really beautiful fundamental sound. And the fundamental sound is, is Hume. Kume is... Once again, that's Cameron Beecham. The standard technique for Tuvan throat singing. It's where everyone begins their training, begins their journey as a Tuvan throat singer. And there are many advanced techniques that come out of it. Overtones are definitely played with quite a bit. I can do a little bit of that. Like, to me, what that sounds like is almost, I mean, knowing a little bit about audio production, it sounds a little Mm -hmm. bit like you're using your mouth to EQ this sound that your throat is producing. Yes, that's exactly what that is. Yeah. Um, Kind of enjoying certain frequencies in a a way. So you have to create... You're creating a filter. Right. And you have to create an initial sound that is complex enough that there's stuff you can filter out of it. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. And there are different kinds of filters that you can put on it. And, you know, it really changed my conception of sound singing, but also playing. So I was thinking about, oh, the different filters or timbres I'm able to work with. Yeah, that was just the beginning. Tuvan, throat singing, yodeling, and then um, belting. That was day two and the rest of that week. So what's belting? The way I think of belting is, like, yeah, talking and then just kind of working up in your voice and talking, and then you talk like this. That actually is a warm-up that we do, is when you say... Nay, 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 nay. That's um, belting it. It's a very childlike kind of nasal sound, but you don't really want to think of it in a nasal way. As are really good. Ah! Um, and it's actually very comfortable, and guys can belt up to, like, the same place that girls can. It's pretty wild. So this this reminds me a little bit of those, like, those Bulgarian ladies. Yeah, this beautiful city that I discovered, actually, in, from a friend in Brussels during that Watson year. She said, here's this CD I've been listening to, Mystery of Bulgarian Voices. And I was like, oh my gosh, what is that? Most beautiful thing. So the Bulgarian uh, women's choir does a lot of belting, sort of really bright singing in that range. During the first Roomful of Teeth residency... That's Brad Wells, the conductor and founder of Roomful of Teeth. We were in need of a full program's worth of music, so I invited singers from within the ensemble to also contribute compositions or improv 
structures or whatever to flesh out the program. Caroline accepted that challenge, writing one of the first movements of her partita. And in the midst of it, we performed Passacaglia for the first time. And there's a moment at the, the kind of recap of the, the main theme after things have kind of devolved into speaking and then a low vocal fry and the voices ascend and hit slap into their bright, belty D major chord and the audience exploded. <laughs> they cheered and they whooped and hollered. And, and all of us on stage were just smiling. It was a moment that captured in an instant what I hoped this project would be, which was more than a standard vocal ensemble, an ensemble that makes use of the voice in a way that is primarily about engaging with audiences directly. And the fact that people responded to Caroline's music, you know, they're hearing it for the first time and they're just excited and they applaud and they holler and they, they cry out. It, it, it showed me that Caroline got it in the most perfect, beautiful way. I feel so deeply um, uh, close to that piece, to the partita. But it was something for me. It's, this is this is a lot of me in this, and it was a very um, you know written in my mid to late twenties when there's um, a lot of uh, how do you talk about this? How do I talk about music? <laughs> I feel very strongly about this piece. Um, it's 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 as much of myself as I could possibly put into something, and I. I know that I'm, it will take a while for for another thing to have that kind of deep weight. Alamond is really hard to describe. It's the swirling, out-of-control feeling of, of dance or just of being in the world. You know, and that feeling when you... Maybe it's a panic attack. Maybe that's what it is. I don't really know if I have panic attacks or anxiety, but... Probably there's a little bit of that in, in the swirling nature of Alamond and then a coming together of like sort of a feeling of it's going gonna, it's gonna to be okay, you know. Um, and that was something I really needed to put into music somehow. To the side. To the side. To the side. And around. Through the middle end. To the side. To the side. To the side. And around. Through the middle end. To the side. To the side. To the side. To the side. And around. And around and around and around and around. To the side. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Through the midpoint. Of the line drawn from left side. Alamand left. 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 Diagonal line, line from the lower left corner. Red horizontal line. Twelve lines from the midpoint of each of the sides. 
the pattern is movement. The detail of 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 the pattern. The detail of the pattern is movement. 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 The detail of the pattern is something I don't want to go into on this interview, but the separation of like composition and performance students in conservatories makes me very, very sad. It made me sad when I was in college. I hope that, um, you know, it opens up for you know, the cellist who went to conservatory who has never written anything but kind of writes something to say like, oh no, I'm, I really can do this and it really does matter, even if someone didn't think it mattered when they were younger. been various articles and trend pieces about composer-performers over the past decade, arguing back and forth over whether this archetype is seeing a renaissance or never really went away. But from my perspective, Caroline's talking about something kind of different here. She's not talking about composers feeling the freedom to write for themselves or even just perform their own work, but performers, those who have specialized for years and years as interpreters, feeling the freedom to just create something if they want. There's a weirdly well-ingrained taboo in the conservatory world. As odd as it may seem, if you major in violin, violin becomes your entire thing, even if you also played flute and piano in high school. Caroline's Partita is such an arresting piece and an amazing example of a performer taking what she knows and creating something beautiful with it.
Hi, I'm Justice Schlichting from Laguna Beach, California. Links to all the music featured on today's show, along with Carolyn Shaw's website, are available at q2music.org slash meetthecomposer. Meet the Composer was produced by Nadia Sirota and Alexander Overington, with help from Elena Saavedra Buckley and Curtis McDonald. Thanks to Hannes Brown. Our executive producer is Alex Ambrose. A very special thanks to Brad Wells, Caleb Berhans, Cameron Beechamp, Zachary Wolf, and New Amsterdam Records. Thanks to New Music USA for their flexibility with the use of the Meet the Composer name, which became famous through their legacy organization founded by composer John Duffy. Also, special thanks to our Kickstarter supporters, including Sarah Small, Eddie Kohler, Lisa Overington, Porter Anderson, James Klosty, and Limor Tomer. You're listening to New York's Q2 Music, part of Classical 105.9 WQXR. Q2 Music is a listener-supported online station devoted to the music of living composers. Q2 is home for immersive festivals, live webcasts, and on-demand concerts from today's leading music performers. Find us at Q2 on Facebook, Q2 Music on Twitter, and online at q2music.org.